welcome to the Bell Podcast. I'm your host, Marcy Timmerman, Executive Director of Mental Health America of Kentucky. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stephen Taylor. He is the Medical Director at Peace Hospital and UofL in Louisville, Kentucky. We talked about coping with the holidays. That was the theme of the day. Uh, Many little tidbits to share. This is the audio of that event, and we wanted to share it with all of you who were unable to be with us in person that day. Thank you so much, and I'll let this get started. Welcome, folks. This is Marcy Timmerman. I'm the Executive Director of Mental Health America of Kentucky. I am pleased to have you join us for Coping with the Holidays by Dr. Stephen Taylor. Dr. Taylor has been in private practice at River City Psychiatrics since September 2017, where he combines medical management and psychotherapy. During this time, he completed a two-year course in advanced psychotherapy at Cincinnati Psychoanalytical Institute and is currently a candidate in psychoanalysis at the Cincinnati Psychoanalytic Institute. Prior to River City Psychiatry, Dr. Taylor was a medical director of peace counseling, part of Kentucky One Health. He served as a psychopharmacologist conducting medication management for various psychiatric conditions, performed more than 6,000 ECT treatments, and provided care for both outpatients and inpatients from Peace Hospital. Dr. Taylor also served as gratis faculty at the University of Louisville and as a member of the executive faculty. In 2013, he received a Certificate of Excellence in Teaching, Medical Students and Residents, and received the University of Louisville School of Medicine's Teaching Award in 2012. Dr. Taylor was born in Kansas City, raised in Mississippi, and moved to Louisville in 1986. He is a 2002 graduate of the University of Louisville School of Medicine. Dr. Taylor has been the Chief Medical Officer at UofL Health Peace Hospital since June of 2020. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Taylor. Is there anything that I missed in your bio? (laughs) No, I can't think of anything. It all sounded good the way you said it. So, (laughs) My first question comes from the actual bio itself. Um, Can you tell our audience what a chief medical officer does? I think a lot of folks don't see that person very often. (laughs) Typically, well, that's true. Oftentimes you don't. Uh, The chief medical officer is often uh, an administrative role in a hospital or institution um, whose uh, one of the chief jobs is to ensure that uh, the patients are receiving the best medical care they can, uh, to be a, li- a liaison between administration and treating uh, physicians and practitioners in the hospital, um, as well as um, being a, a liaison for the patients themselves. Yeah, oftentimes patients won't see the chief medical officer, but the chief medical officer is pretty busy in the background. Uh, watching what's happening in the hospital and making sure uh, the patients are being cared for safely and that they're getting everything that they need. We also have quite a few attendees from out of state who may not be as familiar with Peace Hospital. Can you kind of give some context of a little bit about the hospital? Sure. So Peace Psychiatric Hospital is a freestanding psychiatric hospital. We have, um, we treat both adults and uh, children in the hospital. And we have combination of inpatient psychiatric care as well as um, intensive outpatient programs for adults and for kids. We have a program called the Crossroads, which is an outpatient program for children. And we have uh, several adult outpatient programs that we uh, run as well. We also do um, substance abuse uh, treatment at uh, Peace Psychiatric Hospital, both as an inpatient treatment as well as in our intensive outpatient program. You guys really cover the gamut. That's wonderful. Thanks well, for we try. <laughs> thanks for telling me a little bit about yourself, what you do, mm-hmm. and where you do it. That's always sure. important. Um, I've personally never seen a year where today's topic, coping during the holiday season, has been more timely for Kentuckians, and I'm sure you agree. <laughs> um, oh, holidays, yeah. 
always have such increased expectations. Um, what types of tricks and tips do you have around managing your own and others' expectations for the holidays? Yeah, you know, just uh, in a normal year, this would be a one-hour uh, talk just talking about coping with the stress of the holidays, uh, subtracting away the effects of the pandemic. Um, but certainly, you know, taking care of yourself and making yourself a priority is important. Um, you know, the holidays can be very lonely. It can be very stressful uh, to go through the holidays. And even if you're surrounded by family, um, it can be very stressful. Uh, and it's, it's easy to forget that we need to find time somehow that we can take care of ourselves, um, whatever that is, whatever makes us feel better, you know, or ways that, that are healthy or ways for us to, to do that. Um, getting exercise, um, uh, things that reading a book, anything that we can do that sort of um, takes care of us. It's important to really spend time thinking about and spending time with those things, especially during this time of year. That's a good tip. <laughs> Folks, uh, if you who are listening, if you want to, you can chat into um, our chat with some of the things that you're doing to help take care of yourself during this time, if you all are doing that. Um, and also feel free to chat any questions along the way. We'll try to incorporate in the, them as we go. Holidays also come with increased stress. I think you and I both know that. And some of that goes with the expectations and some of it's just because it's the holidays, right? A lot of new things are going on. We know that stress impacts our physical health in many ways. Uh, it's important to learn to management, manage it. Um, do you have any go-to stress relief ideas for folks? Uh, well, I well I like to I like to walk. So walking is the thing I do. That's that's sort of my go-to thing. Uh, even if it's cold, I'll just bundle up and go find a trail somewhere and walk. Uh, so so that's that's the thing for me. Um, I have a really good friend whose stress is bubble baths. So that's that's where they go, and that's great. Um, uh, and so, you know, I think it is something that's sort of different for all of us, to be sure. Um, and I like spending time with friends when I can. And this pandemic makes it stressful for us to do that. But platforms like this, Zoom, while, while this is not perfect, it certainly does give us a way that we can connect with each other. Um, you know, the FaceTime, you know, doing FaceTime calls or other ways of communicating that way are good to stay connected and to remind us that we're not by ourselves. We're not alone. Those things are important to, to use as well. Um, and I have a friend too, another friend who, who is such an extrovert. He cannot, he's, this pandemic is making him crazy uh, with all the social um, distancing. But he has this enormous front porch on his house. It's an outdoor porch. And he's got it set up so that on one end of the porch, he's got himself sitting with a computer screen and a long cable that goes to a monitor at the other end of the porch and we'll sit out on his porch and watch movies. So he'll be, he'll be, you know, we're outdoors, we're socially distanced. He'll be at one end running his computer. I'll be at the other end with a, with a monitor in front of me. And we have movie time that way. And so, you know, that's, that's a way that we can sort of get together and spend time together in this crazy pandemic time. That's a really creative solution. I, I approve. I'm going to have to think about something like that for myself because I'm obviously an extrovert. <laughs> What are some signs of stress though? Like, I don't think that everyone realizes when stress is present, especially now in COVID-19, where kind of stress is every day. Um, do you have some like general tip-offs that it's maybe time to do some self-care for folks? Yeah, I mean, if you're not sleeping very well, that's an that can be an indication that you are under increased stress. Uh, feeling tired, more tired than usual. Uh, that's a, a, a pretty 
fair indicator that we are suffering from stress. I was having a conversation with somebody recently about this experience of interacting virtually, and they were talking about how exhausted they were back in March and April. They were doing the same amount of work, but they were doing it all remotely. So they were talking on on these Zoom calls. They were talking on other, um, you know, uh, sort of social media platforms, and they were just wiped out at the end of the day. You know, because it takes a lot more energy. It takes a lot more of our concentration and energy to connect and feel connected through this kind of medium. That's definitely a sign of stress. You know, that's feeling exhausted from our work is one of the ways that we definitely feel stress. That's a good tip off. I found my frustration tolerance to be a little lower lately. And so I'm like, when that gets even lower, that's also a tip off for me that it's time for some self-care and taking a break. <laughs> I was looking at the chat here and I just saw somebody put in a chat that, uh, that just kind of caught my attention because it's about food. It looks like what one of your one of the viewers says they like, they bake cookies, six or eight different kinds of cookies every year and have freeze them and enjoy them during the morning. I need to know where this person lives. She's in Licking <laughs> County, Ohio. She's one of our MHAs there, actually. Thanks, Penny, for sharing <laughs> okay. that. That's great. Yeah, I need those cookies. <laughs> I'm a cookie baker as well. I'm going to be stress baking for the rest of the day, probably. So <laughs> that is something that I've seen a lot of, actually, is a lot of baking happening, too, across the, across mm-hmm. the country. So mm-hmm. that's been really interesting. Are there anything specific that you can think of that we can do to help children manage holiday stress? I know the the holidays are so magical for a lot of kids, but also during COVID, especially, we're seeing more stress out of kids. So is there anything you can suggest? Yeah, it is very stressful for them. You know, kind of the, the same things we're talking about for us are things that I would sort of uh, reflect for kids as well. Spending time with them, playing, you know, having fun, playing games, helping them sort of engage creatively and to to have fun is important too. It's a great way to relieve stress also for kids. The cookie thing that (laughs) if, uh, you know, that, that would work for me if I was a kid. Uh, So, you know, getting them involved with doing things around the house, getting them involved with baking, if they're old enough, those things, kids like to do that. Some kids do anyway. And and that can be a, a real stress reliever too. getting them more engaged with the things that you're doing. It's a great idea. I've found myself cooped up at home with my first grader and my husband. And it's like, sometimes we're all in the same room and yet completely different places <laughs> doing very different things. So that connection has become important. Mm-hmm. My wife's mother had this amazing ability to engage children. You know, she would, she would put them at a table and then she would plop something in front of them to do, you know, um, a puzzle, something to play with, leftover dough from a pie crust or something. And they would just, they would play for, they just play for hours. You could just give them something to do and they would just be completely entertained. I've never seen anybody with that kind of gift, but she was really, she really was gifted at that. Sometimes it takes an extra special creativity to do that kind of thing. It's a good idea (laughs) though. (laughs) Yeah. So we'll switch gears just a little bit. Um, It's common to have many traditions around the holidays, of course, from menorahs to Christmas trees, candles to food. Um, traditions vary a lot in what they require of both time and funds, but are there mental health traditions we should consider adding to our festivities? I think that's a, I think that's a really important thing to consider. Yeah, you know, things that we do that are good for our mental health, not keeping our, I sort of think about the knots. I'm going to say the knots first. You know, like we should not spend all of our time with our nose buried in the news. Uh, you know, that's, that's just um, going to make us depressed. 
we do need to take time to engage our minds and other activities. Um, reading, watching movies, uh, playing board. Somebody talked about playing, bringing out the old vintage board games, you know, playing games, things that sort of engage our minds uh, in ways that sort of can be distracting, which I think a little bit of distraction can be a good thing. We don't want to be totally distracted, but we don't want to be so wrapped up in what's going on that it's just we can't disengage from it. I think that's one of the things that we can really do that's very crucial. Making sure that we're we're getting enough rest and we're sleeping. I mean, that's something we don't talk about a lot. We don't live in a society that uh, that spends much time talking about sleeping, but we do need to make sure we're getting enough good sleep and eating healthy. You know, taking care of our bodies too is a way we take care of our minds. Uh, that's also important. And I'm going to selfishly plug our mental health screenings as something that you can definitely do anytime during the holidays, folks, especially if you're concerned about your drug or alcohol use, or um, if you're concerned about whether what you're feeling is normal, because it's definitely a time that brings up a lot of those conflicting and sad feelings. Um, So that's something that we would say as well. But I love your ideas of, you know, getting enough sleep being an actual tradition of the holidays. That's an important thing. Yeah, making sleep a holiday tradition. That, that should be like my new, that should put that on my door. That should totally be a meme. We're going to have to make it one. <laughs> Penny added in the uh, chat as well that anything people can do to help someone else in need is a great stress reliever. She finds that, you know, having kids help with cooking for a holiday meal or buying gifts for, for the Salvation Army or the Angel Trees or whatever. That's a good idea too. <laughs> yeah, I like that idea too, because it also be, starts building habits like that early on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, getting kids involved in that, it sort of becomes a, a kind of sort of builds into their own fabric. So as they grow and get older, that just, they just sort of do it. That's the kind of thing that they just kind of do. Yeah, that's a good point. So I've heard many moms and others uh, saying that the holidays just aren't as fun this year. They're not as festive as they have been in years past. Whether it's due to changes in their economic status, maybe someone was laid off, maybe both of them were um, having lost loved ones, of course. We know that that's front and center right now. Um, Or having to drastically change their usual plans. Just changing our normal life, right, can be really stressful and sad. Do you have any tips for handling feelings that are less than ideal or different than usual? Well, I think that one of the most important things we can do with our feelings is just to, to acknowledge that they are there. Uh, and to allow ourselves to feel the things that we feel. You know, I think that we, I think part of the pressure about the holidays specifically is, you know, all of our songs are about, it's the most happy, it's the most happy time of the year. You know, all these things are telling us that we're supposed to be excited and happy. And those things are there, they're true. Uh, But there are other feelings that we have too. And I think that, you know, when folks are feeling the feeling of loss, somebody's, they've lost a loved one, uh, they're, they're feeling the intense loneliness of being isolated. All of those things that they feel are feelings and they are feeling them. And I think to fail to acknowledge them uh, runs the risk of making things worse. Um, you know, if we, tr- if we just try to say, no, I can't feel that way. I have to be positive and happy. Um, then, then I think that, I think that we, can, we can sort of back ourselves into a corner. So I do think that acknowledging what we feel and just being able to feel what we feel and having a way that we can talk about it, I think is important. 
you know, having a counselor, a friend, or a confidant, or somebody that you can talk to about what you're going through. Support groups are very helpful in helping people deal with feelings that are causing them psychological pain. I almost caught myself saying negative feelings, but but I think that that probably sells them short, uh, you know, because if somebody's grieving, it's not that grief is a negative feeling. It's just that it's something that's hurtful. And it's something that we also have to process and to deal with. So having a way we can talk about it or somebody that we can talk about it with is important for our mental health. I've seen a lot of people seeming to identify how they feel as being who they are. Is that common, do you think? Or is that something that's healthy or not healthy? Mm, Say more. They tend to be like, I'm now a sad person because I'm sad today. Or I'm. they identify with their feeling like self-identity. I didn't know if you've seen a lot of that happening, if that's a healthy behavior. I'm guessing it's probably not. Um. (laughs) No, I do see it a lot. And uh, I'm just kind of thinking about it as you ask the question, I guess, because I'm sort of thinking about what I think about that. Yeah, you know, because I, th- I think you're right. I think we do tend to identify ourselves with our feelings. So, you know, it's kind of like this, the um, Winnie the Pooh story, right? We identify Eeyore with sadness. We just say Eeyore is sad and mopey. We don't say Eeyore feels sad and mopey. We say Eeyore is. So we kind of do tend to identify ourselves with feelings in that way. Uh, and so, so we may be selling ourselves a little short when we do that. Yeah, I may be feeling sad today. That may be one of the things that I feel. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I that I am a sad person. It just means that today I'm feeling sad. So so I do think that, you know, I think in mental health, this seems to be a thing more in mental health is from what I see than, than in a lot of other um, areas of kind of the medical world. Although I think that maybe people who have some particular um, chronic health issues will identify themselves with those chronic health issues. But, you know, if I have high blood pressure, I don't walk around saying I am high blood pressure. You know, it's like it's not something that sort of is what I am. It's one of the things that my body has that that I'm dealing with. So I think that that is kind of true about our feeling states. But I think sometimes the opposite thing can be true as well, where people won't identify any of their feelings and they're really disconnected from them. And and that, that can be a different kind of problem. So, you know, there, there is something kind of healthy about being able to be aware of what you might be feeling and acknowledging that you have it. But I do think that the over-identification with it could lock out other things that you might be feeling too. Thanks. That was an excellent answer. And I know I surprised you with that question. So thank you very much uh, on that. <laughs> are there some common signs or symptoms that indicate that normal holiday stress isn't the only thing at play, like that there might be something more serious going on? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the obvious answer to that today as we're talking is, uh, yeah, we're, we're in a pandemic, so, so that's there. But I mean, in some ways, those kinds of stressors are happening even outside of the typical holiday stress time. What could be signs that somebody may be suffering from more than just the holiday blues? I think one way to answer that question would be, how long have they been suffering? You know, we sort of think about the holiday blues sort of coming on with when the department stores start blaring Christmas music at us. And when we see the first reindeer go up in front of somebody's store, you know, that, that seems to be kind of the heralding the, the, the holiday season, which can be bringing those feelings on. But certainly if those feelings are happening before that, 
ever starts. There's there's something there that could tell us there's something that's been going on for a while. You know, and if we see somebody having, you know, really severe difficulty in functioning, they, they aren't sleeping at all. Uh, they stop eating. They can't seem to get themselves even to get up and, and get ready for work or our uh, grooming habits just disappear. They quit shower and they stop taking care of themselves. Those would be probably signs that something more is going on. There's something else happening here. And especially if somebody becomes suicidal and thinks that they just can't live anymore and they're starting to plan how they might take their own lives, that's certainly a, um, a, a big warning sign that maybe something else is going on. It's not just about the holidays. Thank you. I know that seasonal affective disorder gets kind of thrown into Hollywood day blues a lot for folks. Um, can you kind of differentiate between those two? Like what might be, since they happen almost the same time. Right. <laughs> they do happen at almost the same time, but the scenes, but the, but the days stay shorter longer than, than just in the holiday season. And it's, it's interesting that you're asking the question because I was thinking about this as I was driving over here to my office about seasonal affective disorder and what I thought about it. And I think maybe I was thinking about it because here it's a gray day. You know, it's the it's cloudy and I'm not seeing the sun. And it looks a little bit like it's all kind of just that time of day just before sunset, you know, when the when the light starts dropping off and you can't see shadows anymore. And I was thinking about that, you know, the quality of light in this time of year. And certainly the further north you get, the more likely you are to have issues with seasonal affective disorder. I doubt it's as much of a problem in Miami Beach as it is, you know, um, in, say, uh, northern Maine or in upper Minnesota or something, you know, where you get really far north and the days really get short. And certainly not like it would be in Alaska, where I think this time of year, they're almost dark 24-7 now uh, for the next few weeks. Yeah, so I think seasonal affective disorder is definitely a big factor. It is a real thing. uh, And I think a lot of people suffer from it. I just can't say kind of on a personal note that I'm a, I like dark, I like the darker days, uh, but, but I'm married to a woman who does not like that at all. And whenever I go to these um, psychiatric conferences, you know, there'll always be like some big arena in the conference center where all the uh, makers of things will have their little kiosks and, and, and areas. And there's always somebody who sells light boxes, who's got a, who's got an area set up. And if I ever got sort of disconnected from her at the conference and wanted to find her, that would be the first place I'd go look uh, because she loves those things. And I think for a lot of people, light boxes are a great way to deal with seasonal affective disorder. If you know you are a person who suffers from um, more depressive symptoms during this time of year, having one of those light boxes sitting on your desk while you're doing your work is a really effective way of dealing with that. I have to agree. Some friends of mine have SAD and they just, they're different people when they have their light box. It's been amazing. Right. I'm not trying to sell light boxes, but I, but I, but I do think they work. They do. And they're, and they're relatively an inexpensive way to handle it really in a lot of ways and not necessarily a pharmaceutical way, which I know a lot of people reject drugs and that's fair, um, especially for something transient like that. So as long as they're not too far along. Hmm. Well, since we are on the topic of light boxes, I will just say one thing about them. There was one really good study that was done looking at light boxes and how they work effectively. And the study would have the participants extend their day by two hours. So you would extend your daylight by a period of about two hours every day. 
If you're one of those real early birds that gets up two hours before the sun comes up, you would sit in front of your computer working and have the light box so that it's shining on your retina somewhere in your peripheral vision for a couple of hours before sunrise. Or if like most of the rest of us, you're working a kind of like a, a normal day, uh, then as the sun's going down, you would turn it on and have it on for a couple of hours towards the end of the day. And that was a study that showed them to be the most effective if you used them that way. That's really neat. I haven't seen that study, so it's great. Yeah, that's it's old. It goes back to my residency, so that means it's really old. That's all right. I just haven't looked at it recently. That's good. Yeah. To shift gears to kind of more your administrator edge of what you do, are you seeing or do you anticipate any increases in mental health crises during the holiday season, especially given the pandemic? Well, yeah, you know, um, it's interesting. The pandemic itself, as bad as things are, does not seem like it's had a massive impact on uh, the mental health care world, but there are a lot of reasons I suspect why that's true. But it is stressful and depression rates are higher. People who are suffering from depression are suffering more. uh, And I think the pandemic is one of the reasons why. And my patients who suffer from anxiety are suffering from it more. And I suspect that the pandemic is part of why their anxiety is worse. Uh, so, so we do certainly see an increase in all that. And I would also say, too, that, you know, from a psychological standpoint, where we are right now in the pandemic and what we're hearing in the news is going to be one of the periods that will test us even more than we've been tested up to this point. And the reason why I say that is it's a little bit like it's a little bit like we are the survivors of a cruise liner crash And we've all somehow figured out some way to float in the ocean and not drown. And we've been doing that for eight months. And then all of a sudden we start seeing rescue planes flying over because we've heard about the the vaccine that's coming out soon. And so we're starting to see rescuers now. And so there's other activity happening. And this is a time where we would be tempted to let go of whatever it is we've been floating on and try to swim towards whatever it is we think we see coming to us. And that's when I think we're at the greatest risk. And this, I think we're in that period now where we really have to be more focused on continuing to do what we've been doing uh, to keep ourselves safe. It's going to be stressful and it's going to be trying on our capacity to be patient and to wait. It's going to make our anxiety and depression feel worse. This is a time I think I'm, I'm most watchful for my patients to make sure that, you know, we're doing everything we can do now to make sure we're keeping them safe. The things that we've been doing already up to this point, but we just need to sort of double down and really hunker down and hold on to it. I would say this is the time to check on those folks that are feeling okay up until this point too, right? I the think folks so that too. are handling it better. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Whether they have a mental illness or not, I've I've definitely seen an increase in the alcohol sales and things like that as a concern as well. Is that something that right. concerns you in the long run? It does, but also I'm thinking, you know, that's probably a shifting from one place to the other. You know, when the bars are open, they're going to go to the bars. When the bars are closed, they're going to go to the liquor stores. So, so I think in some ways I'm seeing a kind of a shift from one to the other in a lot of that. I think a lot of that buying behavior is related to that. Uh, But certainly the use of alcohol on top of anxiety, depression, or other psychiatric um, problems, mental illness, uh, uh, can be a very dangerous combination. 
And I, I kind of thought that too, when the first initial thing started happening in March, I was like, well, that's because everybody doesn't have stuff at home. <laughs> you know? and I was like, I was like, yeah. expected it to kind of die off a little. And then it didn't quite as much as I had expected. So that was, that was exactly. I've been to the grocery store of toilet paper and yeah, I got all the toilet paper and paper towels. Now I'm going to the liquor now store. Now it's time for you the, know, I think that, I think that's part. <laughs> Yep. And that mom wine meme happening. Right. So that's always a thing. Um, (laughs) Unfortunately, (laughs) thank you for all of this excellent uh, information so far. I hope you got news that most of our folks that are, are signed up or actually seem to be healthcare workers. I didn't know if there's any specific kind of advice you have for healthcare workers dealing with these times on top of the holidays, on top of the usual winter rushes through uh, nursing homes, hospitals. Yeah, I I was getting distracted by Kelly's uh, question. Kelly Galuli had asked a question about, you know, concerns about the aftermath. Uh, So I want to talk about her question too. But yes, your question about the um, healthcare workers. I think it's important for us to realize that we are human beings, that we all have feelings and that we all can be hurt and we all um, need help. And I think um, healthcare professionals, doctors particularly, are really bad at admitting that they're human beings who um, need help. So I would say to to my colleagues and to all people who are working in the healthcare world um, to take care of yourself too and reach out to people who you trust, who can help you to help you uh, so that you don't do this by yourself. You're not alone. Uh, We work better in groups. Uh, so, So find your team and rely on them. Yeah, it's a good one. Thank you. And yeah, the aftermath 2021-2022. I was definitely going to ask that too. So thanks, Kelly. <laughs> yeah. I think the thing about the sort of the recovery phase of our psychological response to disaster can be very challenging because, you know, um, it's a little bit like walking out of the house the day after the hurricane. Uh, you know, you somehow you survive the hurricane. And so there is a little bit of that feeling of elation there. But your neighborhood is completely wrecked. You know, everything is completely destroyed and there's all this work that has to happen. And so I think as we, you know, roll up our sleeves and get to that part of the process of really getting into the work, I think we do have to be very, again, as a psychiatrist, I think, to be very mindful of our mental health as we work through that. Not to say, okay, we got that out of the way. Now now we're done, let's move on. I think that would be a mistake to take that uh, way of thinking about it. There is gonna be traumatic stress to deal with. There is gonna be trauma all across the board in a lot of different ways uh, because of the effects of the pandemic. And just because the pandemic ends, which it will, but just because it does come to an end, doesn't mean that we can just stop worrying about our own uh, mental health. Good point. Yeah, we've got another question. Are there specific challenges kids will face when they go back to face-to-face school if they've been out of the face-to-face classroom for about a year? I was thinking, I was just thinking about what it would be like or what it is going to be like, you know, to go into a restaurant for the first time, you know, uh, after all this is over. And and I think that it's going to be, there is going to be a little bit of a warm-up period, I don't think it's going to be just like, oh, yeah, it's all over. Let's get right back to normal because it's going to feel different. You know, the way we feel getting back to what we would call normal is going to feel it's just not going to feel the same. And that's okay, you know, because we've had a different experience. So it's not going to feel the same when we go back. 
It might have been one of uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's quotes, you know, that he could never cross the same stream twice. I don't know if that, I don't know if I'm attributing that to Emerson or if it was a Thoreau quote, but anyway, it was one of those um, writers that was saying, you know, you can never go over, you can never cross the same stream again. You know, once you, the person you were when you cross it the first time is not the person who's going to cross it the second time. And this pandemic has changed us all. You know, we're all different. And so when kids go back to school face to face, when this is all over, they're, they've changed. They're different. You know, this has had a, this has had a, had a changing ex- effect on them. And I think it's just important to be mindful of that. They're going to feel it. They're going to experience it differently and be open to how they talk about it. You know, what, what do they say about their experience? Uh, what's it like for them to go back to school? What's it like for them to see their friends again? They're going to have feelings about it, and they're probably not going to be what I imagine they're going to feel or what I expect them to feel. But if I can ask them, they can tell me what it is they're experiencing, and then I can go with that. I can work with them uh, with, with, with what they're telling me. And I think that's important as our kids get back to going to school again, to be open to what their experience is and hear where they are, hear what they're going through, and try to meet them there. Yeah, I've been talking to a few educators who are like, and we have to remember the kid we knew last year wasn't the same one, right? And, and even right. when folks are were back in, in August, right? A different kid came in the door from February to August. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing to keep track of in their minds too, because they've changed too as teachers, even how they choose to teach right. and, and what they teach has changed. So yeah, it's just going to be different for all of us. You're right. I definitely have some friends who are going to keep wearing masks after this during flu season. And I was like, yeah, yeah. That, that'll, that'll last for maybe a year or two, probably. Right? But it's You're actually right. good. They're healthier. You know, they're like, I don't sure. have the cold. Yeah, we are going to see that too. Um, I was looking at this chat here. Oh, that's a good point, Penny. She writes that 24 um, 7 news is for our convenience, not our consumption. I really approve of that. So. I like that too. That's a great quote. I may have um, to steal that one. <laughs> yeah, I'll quote Larry, Lori Chris though. <laughs> so, yeah, she right. says the hardest thing she's seeing in the community is the universal continual trauma. And I, that's a great way of putting it as well. Any tips for kind of holding space for that trauma as we move forward? Well, you know, I was just the, 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 the idea of trauma just sort of sparked this thought for me, you know, uh, the thing, uh, I was just, I just had this flash of a thought. You, you guys remember the um, Chilean miners that were um, in the mine for like 90 days or something, you know, it was just an incredible ordeal that they all went through. When they were recovered from that mine, all but one of them started showing signs of PTSD. You know, it was almost a hundred percent, which is not unremarkable, but I think it's worth noting because it was about time and it was about time and exposure to trauma. You know, the longer we are exposed to trauma, the more likely we are to have um, effects of trauma persist after the traumatic event ends. It's as true in wartime as it is in any other experience we have as human beings where we are experiencing trauma. And so I think that's a really good, a good point. I think it's an important thing for us to continue to think about that as we move forward in time, we are going to be seeing some of those signs persist. And we may see signs of it emerging where we don't see it right now. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I do think that's an important thing for us to keep you know, on our radar screens. 
Yeah. I think we'll all be dealing with a little bit. Right. So just as a community and how does the community work through that? Well, how have we done Mm -hmm. before? Right. Mm -hmm. Is a good question to ask ourselves. I think a lot of folks don't think about it that way. And I'm like, well, the pandemic, think about how you come together after a tornado or a hurricane or wherever you are. And that's a, that's a piece of what we're going to do when we, when this is finally over. Right. I I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So they, no other questions are coming in yet. So I have one about telehealth Um, question for you on, how you feel it's going and if you expect to continue to see that happening after the, the COVID-19 pandemic ends, because I know a lot of things were waived. A lot of things have come to change it and make it a lot more accessible. Telemedicine is probably here to stay. You know, I think this pandemic is having a massive effect on how um, providers uh, practice their fields of medicine. Uh, and so I think that those effects will very likely be permanent uh, to some extent. Again, I'm thinking about my own practice. You know, I see a lot of my patients I either talk to on the phone or I see through uh, some, you know, kind of virtual media platform like this. And I won't stop using it. You know, that, that will always be there, even after the pandemic comes to a close. Uh, so I'll, have, I'll probably have patients who will continue to use one of those forms uh, of reaching out to me. It's a matter of convenience for a lot, but for some, it's just become a kind of a new way of thinking and acting and interacting. So I think it probably will not go away. Um, I think that it does provide challenges. It is more difficult to communicate and to connect through this um, virtual wallpaper, but it's also, but it can happen. It works and you can get it done. And so I think as we adjust to that um, that level of work and the kind of focus and concentration it calls for, I think it's just going to become part of how we work. And so I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I think you're right. We're definitely pushing to keep some of the relaxed rules about it um, going, especially for our rural folks that would have to travel two or three hours one way to an appointment. This has really mm-hmm. seemed to, to reduce our, our missed appointments and things. So Yeah, there was a question here about whether... Um, insurance would continue to pay for Zoom sessions or not? Well, I really can't speak to that because I'm, I'm my private practice, I don't take insurance, so I don't know what they're doing. It would be hard for me to imagine that they would stop doing that. I'm not saying that they wouldn't, uh, but I haven't heard anything one way or the other on that question. Jan, can you let us know what state you're in? Because I'm not sure if you're local or not, and that will make a difference as well. Um, in the state of Kentucky right now, we have not seen any increase in co- complaints about that happening. So I think here the, the laws might differ from state to state. Um, I would definitely, oh, I see you're in New York. Yeah, I would definitely check with your New York MHA. Um, they'd be on top of that and know that really well. Um, that's some of, some of the things that that group especially does really well. Um, and locally here in Kentucky, uh, all of them are supposed to be covering all ways at the moment still. That is still part of our emergency order. And until the pandemic is over, that will continue. And then I think there will be a fight to be had over what will happen after the pandemic um, as far as what, what level of privacy we need and, and that kind of thing from devices. So, um, But right now, they're supposed to be covering FaceTime and all that stuff as far as I'm, I know. If there are Kentuckians on who are having issues with that, please feel free to reach out. We're at 859-684-7778. I'm always happy to, you know, advocate for you with your insurance and, and all of that. So that's definitely something that I'm ready to do anytime. So, 
Daisy comments that some providers are are delving more into their laptops instead of hands-on um, before the pandemic. So she's worried that they're going to do more telehealth um, just because it's something that providers are choosing. Is that something you're seeing a lot of the providers at, at Peace especially or, or other colleagues of yours doing? Well, you know, I think that I think that the uh, chronological chronological age of the provider is going to have some impact on uh, adaptability. Uh, and so I would say that for most of our physicians who are practicing at Peace um, Hospital are older and not as likely to utilize telemedicine as others. But we do have a provider who's been completely on telemedicine the entire pandemic. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, it's kind of, it's a little bit of both, really. I see it as a time of transition between different generations. And there are younger members who don't like it either. I mean, that's not mm-hmm. that's not classically the same along the ages. But, true. That but is it true. can. It's generally, I think you're right. It, it tends to be who's comfortable with technology and who's not. And who's used to building rapport over virtual f- platforms than, and who's not. So mm-hmm. I think that's something that some younger folks tend to be more inclined to have done before. So, yeah. We are getting close to time, so that, thank you so much for all of your time with us, Dr. Taylor. I was happy to. Yeah, it was some great uh, information, I know for sure. And folks, if you're not familiar with MHA Kentucky, we are trying to do these Zooms um, at least a couple of Mondays a month, um, and they are always going to be free. Uh, our next one is coming up next week, actually, on labyrinths and mental health with Reverend Dr. Jan Cottrell, so feel free to join us there. You can find all the information at mhaky.org. Thank you again so much, Dr. Taylor. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Bell Podcast. Again, that was Dr. Stephen Taylor of Peace Hospital, a University of Louisville Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky. I wanted to say special thanks to Jennifer Longworth at Bourbon Barrel Podcasting for editing our sound today. Also to Adam Sovkoplis, our composer of the Bell theme, which you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast. And also thank you again to UofL Health and Peace Hospital for lending us Dr. Taylor's expertise. If you have any questions or need to have resources related to this event, please don't hesitate to contact us at mhaky.org. Our email is mhaky at mhaky.org. And our phone number is 859-684-7778. There's no health without mental health. We hope you take care of yours. Thank you for listening.